Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is Jane Mackay, founder of Astute Ideas, which is a consultancy based in Bristol that works mainly with food and drink startups and SMEs. Jane is also co-founder of Zen of Slow Cooking, which is an award-winning spice company based in the US that ended up winning listings in Whole Foods and Walmart. That connection between the UK and the US gives you a little taste of the unique perspective that Jane brings to all things food and drink and grocery retail strategy. So we have a great conversation about the growth that food and drink startups saw in many international markets during the pandemic and how to sustain that growth now that we are in the middle of a cost of living crisis. We also talk about what UK food brands tend to get wrong about expanding into the US, the key trends that are on Jane's radar right now, and the implications of the HFSS crackdown on small brands. So that's coming up in a moment, but first let me bring you up to speed with some of the big stories in food and grocery retail this week. George Eustace, the DEFRA Secretary of State, has said the government is considering delaying several food policy initiatives while the country deals with the cost of living crisis and soaring inflation. Speaking at the FDF conference this week, Eustace said the government was currently reviewing all policy initiatives with a view to potentially delaying them if the time isn't right. This could include the HFSS crackdown, which is due to come in in October. Chancellor Rishi Sunak delivered his spring statement amid a spiralling cost of living crisis this week, announcing a cut in fuel tax duty by 5p. Major supermarkets including Asda, Tesco, Sainsbury's and Morrison's cut prices at the pump as a result. Asda has announced a major overhaul of its pricing strategy and the launch of a new budget range called Just Essentials by Asda. The new range will comprise 300 products, including beans, bread, crisps, biscuits and household items, and it's due to launch in four weeks' time. Iceland MD Richard Walker has warned that some households are now so strapped for cash that they're turning down potatoes and other root veg at food banks because they can't afford to boil them. In an interview with BBC Radio 4, Walker also said the cost of living crisis was the single most important domestic issue facing the UK and that the government needed to do more to help consumers and businesses cope with soaring inflation. McCall's CEO Jonathan Miller has announced he is stepping down as crisis talks continue with lenders to prevent the convenience store chain from collapsing. Angus Porter, who is non-executive chairman, will take over until a new CEO is found. Nestle has stopped sales of all non-essential products in Russia following mounting criticism over its decision to keep trading in the country. It will stop selling products such as confectionery, pet food and coffee, but will keep selling baby food and food for medical and hospital use. 
Earlier in the week, Nestle was targeted by hacking group Anonymous, which claimed to have released large amounts of company data, although Nestle disputes this. Supermarkets have stopped selling free-range eggs in the UK following a major outbreak of avian flu, which has resulted in birds having to be housed indoors for the past few months. Because the birds have been indoors, the eggs can't legally be described as free-range and are now sold as barn eggs. And finally, McVitie's has unveiled an HFSS-compliant version of its Rich Tea Biscuits. The new biscuits are called Rich Tea Delights and contain 30% less sugar than the original and no artificial sweeteners. These are the big food and grocery retail stories this week. You can find links to everything I mentioned in the show notes and on thepicklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Jane Mackay. Jane, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Now, you are the founder of a consultancy business called Astute Ideas, which helps FMCG companies, particularly SMEs and startups, navigate all sorts of tricky strategic questions around purpose, for example, and retail strategy, but also how to expand internationally. And you come to all of this with a really interesting personal perspective, because you co-founded an award-winning and B Corp certified spice company called The Zen of Slow Cooking while you were living in the US. So there's so much I want to talk to you about, but take me just back to your time in the US. How long were you out there for and how did you end up co-founding a spice business? Oh, that's great introduction for a start. So how did I end up co-founding a spice business in the US? Well, we moved out there in 2011. And within a year, I had met my business partner and co-founder, Meg Barnhart, around someone else's dining table. Can you believe it? It was meant to be. Um, But actually, we'd met on a social media workshop. So 2011, I think Instagram had been in play for about a year. So we're talking quite a long time ago in terms of uh, social media. So we sat around this dinner table and Meg had an idea for a business around slow cooking. And it was using the vehicle itself, the slow cooker um, or a crock pot, as it's otherwise known, Uh, as a vehicle for change. And by that, I mean to create a social impact through uh, productizing our recipes. So we sat around and developed recipes and really thought hard and long about the sort of business we wanted to create. So we identified um, our core values. Um, It was going to be mindful, nourishing, relevant, simple, and delicious. And we really looked at running the business through the lens of those five guiding principles. And so we started the blog. We started slow cooking together. She'd been at it for about 10 years before because she needed to alleviate that kind of stressful time at the end of the day when your kids are running around. Um, And so I recipe developed with her and we very soon came to the realization that actually the flavor foundation and the spices were what were intriguing and in terms of creating a business were going to be the right vehicle to have a for-profit social impact business. And so that's where it all began. And I produced this little tea bag filled with whole spices um, within about a month of us meeting and said, this is the way forward. This is the future of Zen um, in terms of the soul of our business, which was to bring people back to the dinner table. 
Tell me a little bit about the business model there. Was that a direct-to-consumer model primarily, or did you also have a retail presence? It's another good question. Actually, we went farmer's market to Walmart and everything in between. So initially, um, we went to the farmer's market with one spice blend with the intention of getting into Whole Foods. That was our first major goal. And um, we got into Whole Foods within three years. And that was sort of our first goal. Um, But the retail space, as you know, is very tricky for small emerging brands. And I think we didn't know what we didn't know. And so this this venture into the retail space was an incredibly difficult and tricky journey. Um, Meanwhile, however, we did have a D2C um, platform. We'd set up our Shopify site and we'd started selling online Um, off the back of the success of doing sort of boutique events and really trialing the product. So that came fairly quickly after the farmer's market. So I'd say early days, we were in it sort of in every channel that we could could be in in that sense. Um, And later on came the bigger distribution. One of the things I remember when I first came across you and your business and we first spoke, one of the things that I found really intriguing about the Zen of Slow Cooking is the idea that you're not just providing recipe inspiration and you're providing these spice mixes to help people make delicious food, but you're also helping them make the most out of an appliance, a piece of kit they already have in their kitchen. And like so many of us, I have so many things in my kitchen that I don't use. So I really liked that idea of not just providing the recipe, but also saying that thing, that big box that you've not used in three years, this is how you actually get the most out of that. Absolutely. And interestingly, the statistics um, in the US, and they're not that not dissimilar here, 85% of households own a slow cooker, and but you know, only 25% of people actually use it on a regular basis. Now, you know, obviously there's more interesting information behind that data. Sometimes it's a household thing. Um, you know, sometimes it's people in people in work who work shifts, for example, will be much more likely to utilize a slow cooker so that you know when the kids come home, if they're not at not at home to help you know create a family dinner time then at least there's something to eat but it was really tying the idea of slow cooking and slowing down to our lives so we're going back 10 years it was a, sort of a little before its time in a in a in a big um, commercial sense and so what we found was slowing down chopping your vegetables in the 10 minutes you may have um, in the morning before you head out and being able to put dinner on but using thought ingredients thoughtfully, layering the flavours and then coming home to that beautiful supper in the evening um, was what we wanted to achieve. But we also wanted to make it accessible and affordable for everyone. So there are all sorts of other applications. Um, it's a safe modality, for example, for cooking. So you can actually help people in group homes and group settings um, learn how to cook um, better. But it's, it's certainly um, as an appliance, it's underutilized. And we found that that the education piece was certainly a big part of what we were trying to do and challenge in in people's homes. Now, obviously, I introduced you as the founder of a consultancy business called Astute Ideas, and your US days are behind you. You're talking to me from Bristol now. You're back in the UK. So tell me a little bit about what you are up to these days with your consultancy business. 
So Zenith Slow Cooking is still very much alive. Um, we've done really super well since 2019 when we went through a full rebrand. Um, and actually during COVID, we managed to really optimize our D2C play. Um, I think that you know, a number of brands managed to do that. Um, so that still bubbles away. However, we are seeking strategic um, partner uh, and buyer for Zen of Slow Cooking in the States. Um, and then on the other hand, I have Astute Ideas, which um, has been something in my mind for a long time, because I always said what I would love to do if I was ever not in this manufacturing side of the, the food and beverage category is help other businesses achieve success um, with what they're doing. And, you know, I live in Bristol. It's such a hotbed of innovation. I mean, we have an amazing food truck scene and all these other things, which I'm sure is the same in many other cities in the UK. And there's just such an appetite for entrepreneurial food businesses to start. And so there's a number of people launching their own businesses who either have no idea about what lies ahead um, or maybe some way down that path um, to growing their business and suddenly think, well, actually, um, I need to figure out how to get online and make this piece work or I'm not in a channel I want to be um, or even partnerships, for example, with other um, like minded businesses. So it's really about helping other businesses evolve um, and hopefully not make any of the, uh, the mistakes that, you know, perhaps I may have come across in my uh, my food business. And one of the things that's quite interesting about you is you obviously have this expertise that straddles the US and the UK grocery market. I wonder, what do you think UK brands get wrong about the US grocery retail market? What's the most common misconception? And what do US brands get wrong about how the UK market works? Yeah, great question. There's some very obvious ones like language and trialing, you know, package, you know, what's on package. But there's an idea, I think, from this side of the pond that it's it's just one market and actually you divide it up and it's 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 you know, 50 different markets, really. And it, the US is broken up into regions, certainly when you're trading and if you have distribution there, you really need to, to grow from, um, you know, a specific region and look at where your product's most going to identify. Conquering the US is not something you do quickly or easily. And I think you have to be very strategic in which markets you go to. So that's probably the biggest issue. I think um, it would be like trying to tackle Europe with one model. You know, um, your packaging needs needs to look right. Uh, there's obviously lots of different laws and the laws aren't just nationwide, they're statewide too. So you can't sell alcohol in a grocery store in one state, but you can sell it in another, for example. Um, so that would be one of the main differences on that side. Um, for American brands coming here, well, I think we certainly have an appetite for um, things that are already verified as such as non-genetically modified. Some of those attributes that we take for granted as having been a part of the European Union um, and all sorts of regulations and legislation, there's, there's certainly that aspect. We have here um, a certain expectation, I think, of what meat should look like, what um, other products should look like um, in terms of their health status and things like that. So that would be one. That would be one of them. 
And what categories and trends are you personally really excited about at the moment? Who or what is on your, your personal food and drink radar at the moment? Right, this is great. And it's too, so exciting. I wouldn't know where to stop. <laughs> <laughs> like primarily, I'd say, so what excites me? The no and low category, hugely, mm. personally and in business. Um, I see so many great sophisticated drinks coming out and emerging in a landscape that has been so underserved for so forever. I mean, you know, now is the time. And so that's really exciting to me. There's, uh, there's some great brands on my own doorstep. And if I'm allowed to mention them, go on. Um, Polenio is one of them. It's, I don't know if you've come across that. Just a fabulous. No, I haven't. Non-alcoholic rum. It's sophisticated. It's got like, you know, pineapple and, and really good flavors in there. Um, a little bit of coconut, hint of cardamom. So that plays to my sort of taste around spice and flavors. So I'd say the no and low se sector also because there's, there's a few of them that are actually coming through in the B Corp movement. Um, so it seems to tally with that, um, you know, business doing better idea as well. And you've just been to IFE as well. What was that like? Have you, were there any particular interesting brands or, um, or, or trends that really stood out to you? Yeah, there were actually, you know, I was really surprised. One that took me off guard was the water trend. They, there's all this functional beverages uh, and water happens to be one of them that people seem to be doing a lot with. <laughs> um, either adding, you know, functional ingredients or just packaging it in a way that appears to be more sustainable. Um, and even water drop were there. Um, the company that provides these very small little tablets that you that have added vitamins like folic acid and things that you drop into a drink and, um, and it does something good for you it basically encourages people to drink more water so that was a surprise um and then again back to what i just said the no and low sector there was everleaf were there that's that's a really great brand that's sort of come through in the last couple of years um lots of other functional beverages there were a few of the really good stalwart sort of um european meats and things like that mm. um just making sure they're still seen i mean you know the uh, Italian sort of prosciuttos and some cheeses and things like that. Um, and, you know, in the drinks category, again, kombucha, mm. you know, kombucha brands. It was really interesting, actually. And then the snack market is another one that, you know, crisp companies with elevated sort of flavours of crisps, truffle and things like that. Um, just good snacking. So those are those are the main things that I saw. It's super interesting. And I think it actually takes us quite neatly um, to the first article I wanted to talk to you about. And I'm going to be a little bit rude because I'm going to ask you to talk about my article pick first, which I normally don't do. But I think it will set the scene for us quite nicely and give us lots to talk about. And in fact, it mentions one of the brands you encountered on IFE, which is Waterdrop. Um, but this piece is from the FT. And the headline is Pandemic Delivers Rich Pickings for Niche Food Startups. Um, the article ties in with the FT1000 ranking, which ranks the fastest growing companies in Europe. And this year's ranking includes lots of food and drink startups. Um, and so the article is really trying to unpick why these food and drink startups have done so well, what are some of the big trends like health that are driving that, but also some of the pandemic-specific changes in shopper behavior that have contributed to that growth. Things like uh, buying more online, being more comfortable with D2C, doing more scratch cooking, 
all of that helped to accelerate uh, the growth of some of these startups. And the big question now, of course, is as we settle out of the pandemic, what's it going to take to maintain some of that growth? But lots of interesting commentary from startups, including Gusto here in the UK, of course, Waterdrop, you've already mentioned, they're based out of Vienna, Anker Kraut from Germany, which is another spice mix uh, company. So I was super intrigued, uh, given how involved you are in that whole startup scene. What did you make of this article? What stood out to you? Yeah, I really enjoyed reading this article, actually. I think um, because it really resonates with our experience at Zen of Slow Cooking um, during the pandemic. It not only drove our shoppers online, which clearly it has for for some of these brands, and some of these brands have actually just started online. They went straight into a direct-to-consumer play. Um, But it allowed us to take advantage of all that, that goldmine of consumer data that we could gather. And I think, you know, you can pay... A lot of money for data and I think that's really useful but in a startup mode you don't have access to a lot of money sometimes and so being able to gather your own data was really invaluable um, because you can respond a lot quicker to your consumer if if they're online you can tweak um, your packaging your image shots you can play around with what the site looks like for example you can respond with better promotions and really do an a b testing scenario of well what's going to resonate with our um, discounts and things like that. Um, you know, for us personally as a brand with a light and shippable product, um, I think that made it really easy to be online as well. I know with, you know, if you were frozen or a, there were other barriers that may have made it harder to do that if you were a niche product. Um, but it certainly accelerated our growth. A lot of people are wanting to purchase with a conscience. I think if you can bring your initial customer in for that first buy, and you can educate them much more with your online site than you ever can with the three minutes, sorry, three seconds, I think, the consumer gets in a grocery retail setting where they're walking past your product and they they literally have that three-second glance. And that's the three seconds in which you have to stand out. So once you bring them to you, then the education process is so much easier. Um, they have longer to look at your attributes and maybe your certifications and see if your values align so I think as a niche you know for the niche market it actually has been really really um, helpful in in getting repeat purchase which is what we're all wanting. How do you see uh, those sort of purpose-driven brands uh, startups that are trying to educate the consumer trying to get the consumer to buy into a specific set of values How do you think they will need to adjust now that we are in the middle of a a horrific cost of living crisis with households really being under pressure to manage costs and cut back on spending? Um, That can be quite a difficult environment for startups that are often playing towards the more premium segment to, to thrive in. How do you think they can strike that balance? I think you're right, it's going to be tricky. Um, One thing I think is, you know, it's unlikely they'll survive if they discount heavily. So that's probably not an option for many of them. However, on a, in a direct consumer play, it's actually a lot easier to offer certain sort of um, special deals. You know, subscribe and save, for example, is so easy to add to, to any website, um, any e-com website that you're using. Um, packaging up your products into a sort of variety aspect and really looking at how you can offer value without cutting you know your um, 
your bottom line and 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 also standing by what you believe in because i think people will continue to spend money on um on products that are in their mind good value and if that means they're slightly more expensive or they just happen to have an affinity with that product to start with so there's a, a few different mechanisms and levers you know to use whether it's um you know going back to um your existing customer list and offering them just keeping them coming back with some specials every now and again but i think discounting probably isn't going to be the way forward uh, and i think it's just making sure your product range you know as a manufacturer knowing that you haven't got too many SKUs out there and your risk is not spread too widely people are still cooking more at home and eating more at home and especially with the increase in prices people are going to going to be looking to make that work more effectively as well so there'll be some winners and losers again which is really unfortunate but I think for the emerging brands people still want treats and nice things um, and they may you know, buy a, a less expensive brand somewhere else. This um, increase in scratch cooking during the pandemic um, that you talked about, I'm really interested in that because it's obviously something that we've heard quite a lot. Um, it's referenced extensively in this article from the FT as well, particularly in relation to uh, the growth of uh, recipe um kit companies, recipe box companies like Gusto. There was a super interesting article I was reminded of um, as you as you talked about scratch cooking in the Washington Post um, about a week ago, looking at what's happening in the US with some of these recipe uh, delivery companies. And their analysis suggested that, um, again, they'd done incredibly well during the pandemic, but growth had stalled po post-lockdown, essentially, and there are lots of different factors and reasons for that, including people cutting back on household budgets. But one factor they'd identified was that uh, some of these recipe kit companies were so successful at inspiring people to scratch cook more, to build their confidence in the kitchen, to help them understand how to cook and how to make the most of the ingredients, that they'd sort of made themselves obsolete. Because after subscribing for a few months, people basically said, well, thank you very much. I now have all the skills I need and I feel more confident just taking my little recipe cards and doing this on my own. Is that something that you see as a, as a potential threat or danger to that, that sector? It's interesting because a lot of my friends and contemporaries, their children are in their teens now and they're starting to utilise these kits as a method for teaching their children how to cook. You know, I'm not always available in the in the evenings because of work commitments. My husband, we cook from scratch pretty much every day. However, sometimes having one of those kits around, getting your kit and saying there's a kit in the fridge, you know, the kids can pull it out and cook it. It's a great method. So bringing, you know, it might be targeting, you know, other segments of, of society much younger than we'd um, ever thought of before. There can be, definitely be some more creativity around how you get to the people of my age who probably would be the target but you know influencing um, a household change and actually getting the children to do it as well but that's a very that's a very small part of the population but I think that's something they need to consider who's coming next what's the life cycle look like totally I think that's super interesting also it sounds like a really clever setup to get your kids uh... <laughs> To, to make dinner for you with perfect instructions as well. Now, I want to move you on to the second article, and this is one that you have picked. It's from The Grocer, 
and the headline is The Gondola End is Dead, Long Live the Power Isle. And yes, of course, this is about HFSS. It's the most recent uh, leader column written by the grocer's editor, Adam Leyland, and it looks at how the looming crackdown on HFSS products is going to change the in-store environment. Um, for context here, the grocer has just run a big conference on HFSS, um, which has generated lots of coverage for them, and they've obviously just heard directly from suppliers and retailers on how they're preparing for HFSS in October. Um, and one of the big sort of pieces of feedback that's coming through from the retail trials that are already out in the market is that people are obviously moving away from gondola ends. There probably aren't going to be enough products HFSS compliant products to really fill up all of that space and instead there's a migration to the so-called power aisle where all sorts of big brands are going to be jostling for space from now on. Jane, I was super intrigued to see you pick this article. What was it about this piece that stood out to you? I picked this article um, for more than one reason but essentially I wanted to talk about the positive and, and negative effects of the HFSS and this change that it's going to drive actually into retail stores, because I think I wholeheartedly agree that we need to be making positive changes towards a healthier approach. Um, I'm not sure the if the way all of these calculations are made, I tried to make a calculation on um, two products actually side by side to determine where they would fit in the new HFSS rules. Um, I, and I did that myself using their guidance, and I'm not sure um, there will be some winners and losers again in that category, but I wholeheartedly agree that this needs to happen. So what was interesting was looking at the issues, you know, of the retailer needing to meet their margins. Is that going to push out the emerging brands and the smaller brands? Because to meet their margins, the retailer will need to double face some of these um, entries in the power aisle. Gondola end will no longer be used for their, their, you know, some of these larger brands that do get to um, place promotional activity on those, um, those end of aisle um, settings. So it was really around how that's going to impact the smaller brands and the emerging brands that may have space now in the grocery store, but don't, won't after this legislation comes in. Um, so that was sort of on the negative side in a way, um, a positive for the HFSS rules, negative for how it's going to impact, you know, in the retail sector. But interestingly, something that happened recently was Waitrose um, trialling their B Corp end caps, uh, their gondolas, actually, which was fascinating to see because just anecdotally, I had friends that came back to me and said, oh, now I know what a B Corp is. So that's, again, a positive impact. It will, if they can utilise those, um, those gondolas, um, not for HFSS uh, goods, but for other means. So for me, it was really looking at how, how will it work and will it drive innovation online again? Because simply these smaller brands can't appear in the supermarket because they're getting pushed out because of this, um, these bigger companies getting the space that, you know, to pay the retailers effectively. Um, so let's see where it goes. Uh, it's interesting on many levels. That's why I picked it. Yeah, totally. And it's so interesting, actually, that you you just mentioned the impact on, um, or the potential impact on smaller brands. 
I'm pretty sure the grocer had another piece looking specifically at the impact on challenger brands. And I think that was exactly one of the messages coming through. Actually, in the run of CHFSS, there are some smaller brands that are really positive about the opportunities, um, you know, that, that, that see an opportunity to claim some space and, and perhaps get some more prominent space that they wouldn't have been in contention for previously. But by and large, also the concern that you just raised, which is to say that, you know, those big brands have a lot of firepower and they're going to be squeezing that space and it may actually end up being harder to to get get a decent amount of space as a as a small brand. Um, I like your example of the the B Corp um ends in in Waitrose and I think I agree they actually did a really nice job because they didn't just spotlight the brands but as you say they had some POS there really explaining the B Corp model and the the values that that stand behind it and I think Sainsbury's has been um, running some gondola ends highlighting brands with strong sustainability credentials recently as well so it feels like there's a little bit of experimenting happening around how to use some of these end caps to to highlight uh, brands that have these kinds of uh, credentials. So yeah, there might be some new opportunities coming through as a result of that. Yeah, I hope that's where it goes. And I think people are seeking that, aren't they? So, um, but again, it's only, you know, it's within a certain budget, isn't it? So it's usually driven by how much money you have in your pocket to spend as well. But yeah, the awareness piece is critical, I think, for these brands that are kind of blazing the trail. Totally. The what, the one observation I would make, as you know, the uh, the Sainsbury's end cap was in in one of my local stores, and I it obviously caught my eye as, as someone who who works in the industry. You do end up with a slightly random collection of brands cluttered on these aisles. I mean, that would be you know, I thought it was really interesting that they were sort of highlighting this, but it did feel just a little bit random to have you know some beer from Brewdog and some um, products from Jude's. It just sort of, I guess, you know, we're still in the early stages of that, trying to make that feel cohesive. Um, you know, it's a little bit easier when you've got B Corp because it kind of ties it a little bit together. But if it's just generally people with strong sustainability criteria, yeah, I felt like I needed a little bit more of a rationale for why this sort of very wide range of products was grouped together. Yeah, and hopefully they will find a more sort of um, permanent home in other ways. And, and you know, and I know they're just trialing a lot of these brands. And so they're just seeing what the interest is. But the brands, the, the products don't just sell themselves. That's the thing. And that, that's always a struggle in retail is how do you get your message out, which is why those brands have to have a strong online presence so that if people are curious, you know, there may be a call to action or an aisle talker, you know, something that has to sit with those products just to sort of say a little bit about it that that you know if you're there stood looking you're probably the person who's interested in knowing a little bit more um about you know some of those products so i think it just has to be a little more sophisticated but actually sophistication in that sense is going to be a little bit of a message you know like i said an aisle talker telling people what the products are why they're there you know a little bit maybe about the founder story um but you know price also has a lot to do with it when people first pick it, pick it up so it's all dependent on who's going to be looking at it yeah Absolutely. Now, the third article is uh, one you picked, and it's from Drinks Retailing News. And the headline is, what is a B Corp drinks brand and why should you care? So we've been talking about B Corp 
quite a bit throughout this conversation. And I know, obviously, that you're very interested in that whole drink space and particularly at Low and No. So as the headline suggests, this article is an explainer breaking down B Corp and what it is, what it stands for. And then particularly its application to the drink sector and looking at some of the opportunities that exist within that sector for strong sustainability and ethical credentials like B Corp. And it also features a list of brands, drinks brands, that have recently gained B Corp certification, including the House of Botanicals, the Uncommon, and also Maker's Mark. So quite a wide range of um, brands in terms of uh, size and, and, and positioning as well. What in particular drew you to this piece and what opportunity do you see for B Corp brands specifically in that drinks segment? This article actually combines, you know, two of my passions. So doing business better being one of them um, and the other, the, the, the no and low space. But about 25% of B Corps are in the food and beverage industry. And so they're sort of playing catch up with each other in a way. It's a bit of a, it's a race to the top as opposed to a race to the bottom. Um, there's a, a lot of influence that I see within the sector at the moment um, of drinks companies who have already done it, like Pentire, for example, which are Cornish brands, they certified during the pandemic. And I think they're seeing people purchase their products as a result of, you know, becoming a B Corp certainly it sits with their messaging their sustainability values um, all of their branding is immaculately done so I think they've got a very nice well wrapped up story around that and also B Corp is really big in the states as well and so um, there's still an awareness drive but it's certainly well recognized and certainly found got its foothold there before it did here um, and so any brands intending to export will probably want to consider that certification so it's certainly certainly an opportunity both for the brands and the retailers I think. Is it harder to engage consumers on things like B Corp certification in drinks than it is in other categories food categories in particular? That's a really interesting question you know I think it's changed so much in the the last two or three years I'd say um, if you have a bottle of a B Corp branded non-spirit or spirit or beer uh, sitting on your counter then you're more likely to see the mark I mean essentially it'll be on that bottle permanently that anybody with a B Corp certification will use it in the labeling um, and and also you know it, there's a lot of these brands being sold online too and therefore you get access to that information more easily so it may potentially be be easier as a drinks brand to convey that message um, and it wouldn't work like that in a in a trade setting for example in bars you wouldn't learn about a status in that sense um, but certainly as a food business that's certified with an ingredient so zen of slow cooking and our spices um, we found we had to tell consumers about it. Mm. A lot of people had no clue. There's still a real education piece. And there's also an education piece around what sustainability means. You know, we bandy these words around and I think we all think we know what they mean, but actually people, consumers are confused. So I think, you know, there's an opportunity in the drinks market. Certainly it will work really well there, but I still think we're all facing this issue over people don't necessarily know what it means. And so it's part of my job in the industry to help educate people um, and anyone else that chooses to go down that route. But certainly having 
a mark like B Corporation that's so highly regarded and a gold standard, I think once those benefits are communicated and people begin to understand that it's a far reaching and a, a very um, rigorous process to go through, then it will work. But will it be good? Will it work in the drinks market? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I see already see people following the lead of other drinks companies. Um, yes, we're going to be a B Corp. I know a couple of that are in the process right now, actually. So yeah, it's really interesting to watch. When you have clients who work with you and who are either B Corp certified or considering something like B Corporation certification, and they're asking for your advice on how to then make the most of that certification, which requires investment, you know, all of this stuff costs money as well. So particularly as a startup, you need to make sure you get decent ROI on it. What are some of the things you watch out for or look out for? What do brands need to get right to make sure this sort of certification is visible to consumers and re the messaging really lands with them? There's the, there's the before and the after. I mean, it, it's a great certification. It's rigorous, but it, it takes time to do it. So the things that but the things that actually come to you are the awareness and the community that's created. Now, you need to make take advantage of that. So as soon as you have that certification, it's how can I use this tactically? Um, what's it what's it going to benefit the consumer if they don't know about it? So you haven't you actually it's the beginning of your work in many ways. Um, how do you share that on pack? You know, what does that look like in all of your communications about your story? Um, you know, it needs to be clear and concise as to what that B in a square actually stands for. And just, you know, drilling it down to the, the nuggets of why you chose to do it and what your credentials are, as, as, you know, and simplifying it, really. So unpack, certainly. And then things like, you know, partnerships with other B Corps, just to amplify, I think work really well for us um, at Zen of Slow Cooking, just finding other people to either do something online, um, you know, together in, in the format of a gift offering in the holidays with other, other companies. I think that really helps. The other thing is around incorporating and embodying the B Corp standards into your, you know, business culture and sharing those values um, in perpetuity. So not only within your internal team, um, but externally as well. And, and it really is that new lens with which to, to look at every decision you make. And I, that brings me on to actually something that Paul Hargreaves at Cotswold Fair and Flourish is doing, and he's driving this through his supply chain, um, which is really fascinating. He has a B Corp cohort going right now with, with some other food and drinks brands. So there's all sorts of ways of making that, actually making that count that one business that certifies um, can help amplify the message in multiple ways. Fantastic. Jane, we are out of time, but if people want to find out more about what you do and connect with you, what's the best way to do that? You can connect on my website, astuteideas.co.uk. You'll find me on LinkedIn under Jane Mackay um, in both my Zen of Slow Cooking co-founder hat and founder of Astute Ideas and Instagram at Astute Ideas. Fantastic. Jane, thank you so much for coming on the show and for being my guest. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening 
and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.